I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails... Episode 28.85. As you can see, the numbers are getting a bit convoluted, but such is the way we must organize this special, because it's 12 episodes in total, and if you're trying to split that into even numbers, it's not exactly easy. But hey, we may do. This is episode 10, guys, so we're fairly far along in the story at this stage, but there is a lot of juicy stuff to come, so thanks for sticking with us. And if you need a bit of recapping, be sure to check the older episodes to get yourselves back up to speed. But yeah, so, in the last episode we opened up our narrative of the war by examining the first real engagement of the conflict, the Battle of Lowestoft in June 1665. Because no one's corrected me yet on that pronunciation, I'm gonna stick with it, so if it really annoys you then it's up to you to correct me at this stage. The Dutch were on the losing end of that battle, and this experience coloured how foreign observers reacted to the war. As the Danes sought to split the profits with Charles II, and Louis XIV's France aimed to forge a peace before British victory became too overawing. Yet, none figured for Johann de Witt's plans and what he aimed to do next, and in this episode we'll see some of de Witt's celebrated tenacity on display, as well as the problems that he regularly faced at home as those problems came to the fore. Without further ado then, I will now take you to autumn 1665. What is our game about? Is it the orange apple? If so, we must change it, for I will not allow strangers to play with such stakes in my garden. Pamphlet, published in Holland before the war, commenting on the need to prevent British meddling in Dutch affairs, late 1664. As much as I enjoy supporting the underdog and not supporting the British, hey, come on, I'm Irish, we should acknowledge the rife divisions within Dutch society at this stage. 
Despite the fact that the Dutch held together much better after news of its defeat than during the First War, there was still a dangerous level of different opinions where the different provinces were concerned, and wouldn't you just know it, the disagreements centred on William of Orange. Specifically, when news of the defeat at Lowestoft came in, after the great Dutch fleet had been sent out with such high hopes in March, panic began to spread before the nature of its defeat had been learned of. The Dutch had been given a bloody nose, for sure, but all was not lost. Most of their ships remained, and they were more than equipped to fight another day. After having enjoyed the role of the distinguished Orange family for so long in their society, up to 1650, the Dutch remained divided between those that wanted the family to return, it may be appropriate to term these individuals Orangists, as most historians do, and those that wanted the era of true freedom to continue, in other words where no stadtholders in Holland in particular were in place, and under the command and direction of the Regent Party, which was headed by Johan de Witt in the states of Holland. Despite Johan de Witt nominally leading the country since the early 1650s, and cutting an impressive figure in his own right, the Dutch Grand Pensionary continually struggled against the remnants of Orangist support in the States General, or Dutch National Parliament if you want to call it that. Peter Gale, in his seminal work on the interrelations between the Houses of Orange and Stuart in the 17th century, which was translated from Dutch in the late 1960s, noted on the history of his homeland in a variety of other critical tomes, but his 1939 work, Orange and Stuart, 1641-72, is of greatest interest to us here. Echoing our view of DeWitt's difficulties in rousing his countrymen, Gale notes that immediately after news of the defeat at Lowestoft was learned, Consternation was rife among the deputies to the states of Holland. Many were anxious to conclude a peace on whatever terms England might be pleased to grant, and to elevate the Prince of Orange to his ancestral offices. The story went around that the crew of several ships had refused to fight unless the Prince's flag were raised. Gale also recounts that, in subsequent attempts to recruit more sailors and soldiers for the war, drummers recruiting in Leiden, in the name of the States General, were abused and then attacked by a number of women, who seized their drums and tore them to shreds. The devil take the States! Drum for the Prince! the women cried. DeWitt was also forced to dispel a number of myths in the early phases of the war as well. Among them, the one put about that Britain was at war with the Regent's regime and not the Dutch people, and that the war was in play for ideological and not economic reasons. In short, the belief, surprisingly rampant in Dutch society considering what we know, went that if the House of Orange were only given its rightful place back in Dutch society, then London would leave the Dutch enough alone. As we have seen, despite the strong feelings for his nephew and the strong feelings against the regents that Charles may have felt, Commercial rivalry and the ideological opposition of his advisers and court would have made war practically inevitable, regardless of who ruled the Netherlands. Despite this though, agitation against De Witt increased following Lowestoft, because at the same time as feeling hopeless about Dutch odds, the Orangist party were also feeling ambitious. The cynical view went that the French would soon abandon the Dutch to a British defeat, and that amidst this atmosphere of national depression, the people would eject to it, and that in this power vacuum William III of Orange could resume his position as Stadtholder of Holland. 
In fact, as subsequent episodes will show, this is not too dissimilar to the way history would play out. But for the moment, there was no need to really despair. Because DeWitt knew that the military situation was not lost, he knew that his position was not lost in turn. For all this though, DeWitt did have to deal with the rampant stigmas that were attached to his regime. Stigmas which would eventually cost him everything. The belief that an Orangist regime was somehow more honourable or more able to conduct a war, and that the regions were more concerned with hoarding or protecting money, were ideas that DeWitt had actively sought to combat by taking the military initiative against the English in the Second War earlier on. These beliefs and stigmas had been built up thanks to the Dutch behaviour in the First War, when it seemed as though the Dutch government in that case, led by the regions, was more interested in protecting trade and convoys than actually fighting naval battles. Unfavourable comparisons to Carthage in many pro-Orangist pamphlets of the time, as well as ringing phrases such as Waging war is clearly no job for merchants, characterised the belief system, which only military success on DeWitt's part could overcome. In line with this aim, in August 1665, Johann DeWitt made the surprising decision to accompany the fleet on manoeuvres in a bid to raise its morale and restore discipline after Lowestoft. Though materially it was perfectly salvageable, it would take some work to persuade the Dutch sailors that the cause was not lost, and that the awful war of previous years would not be repeated again. To accompany this strategy of revitalisation, DeWitt ensured that a number of pamphlets and encouraging perseverance and belief in victory were commissioned. With such catchy slogans as, The first round counts for nothing, watch out for the next, and the hearts of cowards lie revealed at this small loss, making the rounds, the intention was obvious. Shame those that would argue for peace, and imbue those that argued for the struggle with confidence. DeWitt couldn't rely on national solidarity per se, but he did believe that by acting publicly to shore up military confidence, he could dispel the old impressions of his regime that had been so ingrained by the previous war. His efforts had some effect, as Dutch society, in the words of Peter Gale, had, a few weeks after the defeat, been aroused against all vacillation and the narrow pursuit of self-interest. Thus, though DeWitt could not rely on all the Dutch people to completely support his regime, he could count on their cooperation if he demonstrated that the war was a struggle for the nation, the burden of which he was sharing as much as others. The appearance of a merchant in a leading position of the Dutch fleet may have seemed strange to the outside observer, and indeed there was some pushback when De Witt all but promoted himself as admiral of the renewed fleet in mid-August 1665. Gale notes that De Witt's enemies rallied at his lust for power, and his nearest relatives were dismayed to learn that he intended to stake the family fortune on the venture. Louis XIV too made no secret of his annoyance. Yet as Gale continues, DeWitt was emphatic in his belief that the circumstances of the day gave him no alternative. When he wrote, There was no one in the Navy who could be safely charged to take full responsibility for the campaign, and he was the only outsider whose advice senior officers might be expected to heed, the only man, moreover, as deputies to the states declared, with sufficient self-confidence to contradict the officers and, if necessary, compel them to act against their own opinions. 
DeWitt's confidence proved valid when he demonstrated himself to be a capable naval commander in his own right, and he seemed to imbue the sailors with a renewed sense of self-belief following various practice manoeuvres aimed at restoring confidence. It seemed to do the trick, and in this mood of positivity news was received of the Dutch act at Bergen and the Danish decision to forge closer ties with the Dutch because of the British action of burning that Norwegian village, if you remember from the last episode. On top of this, Admiral de Rutger, a veteran sailor and beloved Dutch naval extraordinaire, returned after skirmishing with the British in the Atlantic, accompanied by a booty of three large English treasure ships he had captured. Though de Witt was still at sea at this stage, he also received word of positive French behaviour, which seemed to intimate that Louis would finally honour the alliance and come to the aid of the Dutch in military terms. For months, Louis had seemed more content to warn and scold the Dutch for not ending the war sooner. But events, as we've seen, had overtaken the young French king, and he now recognised that the war was not about to end. Rather than allow the Bishop of Munster, Bernard van Gallen, to take advantage of the weakened Dutch army, following its impressment into the navy, Louis's first real act as nominal Dutch ally was to send enough soldiers to the Dutch border to repel Munster's forces, neutralising the sole land threat to the Dutch Republic in the process. De Witt returned with the fleet in early September 1665, and Admiral de Rutier was symbolically welcomed on board as the leading admiral a few days later, to the cheering of the crews. With morale back on track, De Witt still desired to stay in place to ensure that everything went smoothly at sea, though at home, Orangist conspiracies were said to be progressing. After venturing out for the final campaign of the year, in November 1665, the refreshed Dutch fleet commanded by De Witt and De Rutger would return home disappointed and empty-handed, having played a cat-and-mouse game with the British fleet for the two previous months. Disappointed they may have been, but the very act of hunting the British demonstrated that the Dutch were not as beaten as Charles's advisers liked to suggest. Several peace terms developed by the Earl of Arlington, which included the exile of numerous anti-English Dutch statesmen, had to be forgotten when the Dutch fleet was seen off the southwest coast, apparently heading for Ireland, and Charles feared that to suggest such harsh terms then would only entrench and unite the Dutch behind the continuation of the war. Arlington, in contrast to the Earl of Clarendon, the de facto Prime Minister, since such an office did not really exist at the time, believed that the Orangist party could be used as a stick with which to beat the arch-enemy De Witt, in the words of Gale. Yet Clarendon believed that such meddlesome policies would only unite the Dutch against the British, a belief which the opening quote of not allowing strangers to play with such stakes in the Dutch garden, confirms, at least in the province of Holland. As beneficial to morale that De Witt's adventures in the fleet may have been between August and November 1665 then, he also left at perhaps the worst possible time for the Dutch home situation. The very absence of De Witt demonstrated his importance for the regent party, because as soon as he wasn't present to keep concerns at bay... The Orangists, the Pacifists, the Anti-French and the combinations of all three began to creep in. In the weeks before, Louis had fully intervened to crush the Bishop of Munster and when it seemed as though French intermediaries were working to force the Dutch to agree to humiliating peace, Dutch ambassadors claimed bitterly that, come what may, they would continue the war. But without the presence of De Witt, no real regent successor 
proved able to traverse the backstabbing and headache-inducing layers of Dutch national and regional politics, with the result that by the time De Witt did arrive home in mid-November, he was shocked at what he found. Charles had taken full advantage of the regent's distrust of Louis by claiming that he would welcome direct peace overtures from the Dutch ahead of French diplomacy. This had led to a number of Dutch regents from the provinces other than Holland taking it upon themselves to try and negotiate for peace. Such activities had to be suppressed by De Witt, or else, he recognised, the reputation of his party would be tarnished even further. Outmanoeuvring both Charles and his disgruntled regent colleagues, De Witt treated with Louis, and devised the aforementioned treaty which committed the Dutch to never make a separate peace with London if Louis declared war on Britain. Louis XIV, as Peter Gale notes, continued to underestimate Dutch powers of resistance, and would do so for the rest of his life. The French king didn't understand the divisions or fears of Dutch society as completely as he could have, though, having just listened to my ranting and raving about it over the past few episodes, who could really blame him, in fairness? In addition, his honour had been slighted, with the repeated efforts of Dutch diplomats to skirt around French efforts at mediation. Did the Dutch not want peace? Because he didn't understand either the Dutch situation or De Witt's position, the paranoia of Dutch regents could very well have pushed him away from the Dutch alliance, into his cousin's waiting arms. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss and further into the planning of his attack on the Spanish Netherlands which skeptical regents repeatedly pointed to as a reason why the Dutch couldn't trust Paris the reason why the Dutch and French didn't drift apart had much to do with the Dutch resurgence and to its efforts to get his domestic affairs back on track after months of absence The Dutch seemed as divided about the French as they were about the British. 
an intense distrust of French motives. Combined with the reputation for religious universalism under a Catholic absolutism that Louis wanted to bring about, provided the reasons against the French alliance. But De Witt, as ever, was thinking pragmatically. He needed the French so long as London remained the greater threat. Once the circumstances changed, he was quite happy to ally with one against the other, as he would soon do. A cadre of Dutch preachers voiced their opposition to the French alliance on religious grounds, but De Witt knew that unless the French remained on side, Louis' behaviour could ruin everything. The mess which greeted De Witt revolved around the submission by the province of Overijssel of a proposal to reconstitute the Orange Party and make a peace with London. Overijssel was a land province on the Dutch-German border, and with the Bishop of Munster, Bernard van Galen, invading its countryside, the lack of able-bodied men soon posed serious problems to that province's security. A small refresher course of how the Dutch state worked. Seven provinces existed within the Netherlands Republic, each with their own provincial states or parliament. These states then nominated their own delegates to the state's general or national parliament, where questions of national policy were voted and deliberated on. The varied interests of the seven provinces had much to do with their geography as their particular wealth, and both aspects were connected. For a landward province such as Overijssel, only a small portion of which actually touched the sea, Concerns were of national security across land borders, and the threat of invasion which could come from other landed states. By contrast, provinces like Holland, Zeeland or Friesland essentially straddled the coast, and were responsible for the renowned trade and maritime exploits of the Dutch state. The positioning of the provinces affected their interests, which in turn moulded their political inclinations. Holland, for example, was the foremost naval trading province, was obsessed with commercial interests, and thus lobbied for the protection of those interests in the states general. The commercial interests produced a wealthy regent class in Holland and Zealand, which developed into the regent party that came to dominate the Netherlands in the 1650s and 60s. The simplest explanation is that because of the presence and influence of the landed regent classes in Holland, etc., the nostalgic military legacy of the House of Orange was less important to its citizens. This, of course, is a huge generalisation, since numerous towns in Holland and Zealand professed strongly Orangist sympathies, just as surely as towns in landed provinces could boast a smattering of regent families. Yet there was a general trend of tension between the commercial, seaward provinces and the landed ones, because the former professed regent sympathies and a completely republic ethos governed by a regent class, while the latter argued that only through the governance of the Orange family and its different branches could the security and integrity of the Netherlands be guaranteed. These two conflicting ideas about what the Netherlands was or should be as a state remained in place literally until its inception as a monarchy in the early 19th century, and in some places it remains to this day. It was possible to keep these tensions under wraps, or at least work under their constraints, so long as the regent class of Holland were able to maintain their hold on the country's policy. Since provinces like Holland and Zealand had such vested interests in commercial enterprise that only a naval war could protect and ensure, they had the most interest in seeing the war against Britain brought to a successful conclusion, while those landed provinces could criticise the war as a nuisance. 
because in their provincial interest, it was more important to keep the likes of the Bishop of Munster at bay than continue a naval war. Thus the proposal of Overiesel to make a peace with Britain can be understood as a provincially motivated act. It makes sense in terms of Dutch geography, because Overiesel didn't necessarily see the benefits of continued war. They rarely reaped many economic benefits from maritime trade, or at least not as much as Holland and Zealand did, and the war had seen national defence be sacrificed in the name of the naval interests, or the interests of Holland and Zealand. Ever since the war began, maritime provinces had seen their interests drive the national policy, at the expense, so the landed provinces believed, of the old Dutch tradition for military prowess on land, which had once kept the Spanish Empire at bay for 80 years. What was doubly dangerous for De Witt was that, hand in hand with the belief that the war had to end and the land strength of the Republic be increased, went the claim that only the firm leadership of the House of Orange and all the relevant leadership positions, such as Stadtholder and Captain General, could restore the Dutch to their old position of military greatness. Such a brazen proposal by a Dutch province in the first week of October 1665 was as daring as it was disconcerting, especially when it was believed that it would open the way to gestures of like-minded support from other provinces. In such an atmosphere, in a series of letters which have since come under immense scrutiny, the French ambassador to the Netherlands claimed that he was able to bribe a great number of officials from the disgruntled landed provinces to follow his desired policy line. A claim which amounted to a declaration that only he had saved the Dutch from internal collapse through his generous system of bribes. Without these gratifications, the Count of Estrade, the French ambassador, regularly asserted, over Esel and even Zealand would have eventually agreed to support the humiliating peace proposal with the British. The truth of the French ambassador's letters aside, the very act that Over Esel was making by trying to forge ahead with a separate foreign policy line was a definite cause for alarm. Added to DeWitt's concerns was the fact that Over Esel's resolution contained orangest undertones and requested the appointment of the then 15-year-old William of Orange to smooth relations between Britain and the Dutch. When Dewitt returned home to the palpable relief of his colleagues then, he immediately set to work to rescue this situation, which threatened to split the Republic apart. In a letter he wrote to his brother Cornelius in mid-November 1665, shortly after returning home, Dewitt said, Those who were out to suppress the country's freedom were making full use of the occasion. But God be thanked, I cannot at present observe, but that all good patriots have taken heart again, and that matters now are going well. The mere presence of DeWitt in The Hague proved enough for the protests of the province of Overiesel to melt away. There had been a panic, not unnatural in the critical circumstances, but as Gale noted, the Dutch shortly returned to a more balanced reaction and a return to a sense of national dignity. If only that taskmaster had stayed away for another month, our plan would probably have succeeded, were the words of the embittered Francis van Palant, a Dutch statesman from Overiesel, whose agitations had launched the original proposal. While sounding remarkably similar to the I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids, van Palant was deadly serious. DeWitt's resilience once again inspired others to follow his example. 
the Dutch state had wobbled and struggled in the first year of the war, as loss abroad and division at home threatened collapse, but this time a national resistance and tenacity had won the day. What was more, De Witt was determined to improve upon this in the following spring. Further good news was to come. In spite of his personal ambitions and the bad timing, Louis XIV had come to be persuaded of the need for French intervention by late 1665. Even if his ambassador has exaggerated, the combined threats posed by the Bishop of Munster and the Orangist party meant that action had to be taken, and if Louis could not persuade either party to make peace from the sidelines, perhaps he would have better luck when participating in the war against his cousin. Such a policy wasn't difficult to switch to, thanks to Louis's previous diplomatic efforts to isolate the Anglo-Dutch war and pressure Charles in particular to make peace. Henry Schoolcraft, in an article we've been looking at for the past few episodes on English and Dutch relations from 1660 to 67, notes that Louis instructed his ambassadors to inform the King of England that he was in honour bound to assist the Dutch in case the war continued. At the same time, he desired that his ally, the King of Denmark, should assist them by diplomatic means. The French ambassador at Copenhagen asked the King of Denmark to instruct the Danish ambassador at London to cooperate with the French ambassadors there in obtaining a declaration of the policy of Charles II with regard to the late overtures from the States General, and also informed Frederick III that, as a last resort, Louis intended to declare war on England, despite its warlike tenor, the announcement of French policy had no apparent effect on the King of Denmark until news of the failure at Bergen arrived at Copenhagen on the 15th of August. The diplomatic tables, apparently somewhat positive initially, now began to turn against Britain. Frederick had been re-persuaded to rejoin the Franco-Dutch camp again after the combined pressures of French diplomacy and British aggression during the Bergen incident that convinced him to close ranks with his traditional allies. With Denmark fully and finally ensnared, though Denmark would double-deal in secret for months before it was clear where he stood, French troops came to the aid of the Dutch, pushing back the Bishop of Munster and ridding the inland provinces of their greatest threat. Such an action suggested that full French involvement in the Anglo-Dutch war was imminent, but Charles maintained his diplomatic pressure on the French king, through the French king's sister-in-law, Minette. Yet by the time of De Witt's return and Charles's failing Scandinavian diplomacy, Louis had already made his decision to side decisively with the Dutch and cash in on the defensive alliance of 1662. To many in the Dutch states general, this was a long time coming, and some even demanded, successfully, insofar as he would loan the money to Frederick III in place of the Dutch, that Louis pay compensation to make up for not coming to the aid of the United Provinces sooner. In return for moving squarely against his cousin and breaking away from his relatively comfortable neutrality deal, Louis also wanted some assurances that De Witt would not abandon him. Thus, De Witt had to draw guarantees from the Dutch Parliament that the United Provinces would not make a separate peace with the British. By the 14th of November 1665, the French ambassador to The Hague was able to denote that a courier bearing the French terms was returning to Paris. The States General had overwhelmingly voted in approval of Louis's requests. Matters now moved quickly, despite the absence of any real engagements at sea during the treacherous winter months. 
Charles's court rejected a third mediation proposal shortly after the Franco-Dutch terms were agreed upon, and a move which Louis perceived as further forcing his hand. Louis followed this up by recalling his envoys from London and breaking off diplomatic representation with his cousin's kingdom. DeWitt sought to mirror this complete break with London and remove his envoys from Britain as well, signifying that a more total war was on the horizon. Yet, the Dutch envoy to London had Orangist sympathies, and his supporters were wary of breaking totally with Britain, since they feared it would isolate them if the war didn't go the way of the Dutch. It was only when the son of this ambassador returned to The Hague, and made a speech to the States General to the effect that England had no desire whatsoever for a fair peace, that all seemed convinced, and the ambassador returned home. Symbolically, it was the States General that took the final step, rather than merely DeWitt. On the 11th of December 1665, it sent a memo to Charles II, assuring him that the Dutch were unified behind the cause of war, but that if Charles sent a genuine embassy for peace, it would receive genuine consideration. Failing that, the memo concluded, peace would only come about with a return to the status quo, or the acceptance of a state of, and forgive me for this pronunciation, uti possidatus, i.e. an agreement detailing that possessions seized by force would or could remain in your hands. Above all, the memo sought to impress upon Charles that whatever happened, the war would not end with Dutch capitulation. DeWitt's intentions now presented themselves in the desire of the states. If the war was destined to be a struggle, then the Dutch would be in it for the long haul. Bookending this defiant declaration, Louis XIV of France finally made his play. On the 26th of January 1666, France declared war on Britain. Only a month later, the fruits of the Franco-Dutch diplomacy was clear, as Denmark joined the war as well, declaring war himself on the 11th of February 1666. In return for a cancellation of his debts and payments from France and the Netherlands, Frederick was to close his ports to London. But the anti-English alliance was not finished there. For the Bishop of Munster still camped precariously on the defensive on the Dutch border, waiting for another chance to strike or to outmaneuver the French auxiliaries sent to eject him. The recruitment of an additional ally to the coalition, the Elector of Brandenburg, further closed European ranks against Charles. When British efforts to concoct an agreement with Spain failed, since the Spanish wished to save their strength for Louis' expected attack on the Spanish Netherlands, and they remained at war with Portugal as well, Britain's ally, in fact, the catastrophe of the British position and the remarkable turnaround of the Dutch immediately became clear. Yet, as both sides prepared to dispatch their fleets in the spring of 1666, it was also clear that mere diplomatic developments would not decide the outcome of the conflict. The war was far from over, and both combatants were more eager than ever to write the next chapter, with what they both hoped would be a successful campaign. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.